Man, this camp, we have had so much fun together, and I've just so enjoyed hanging out with all of you and, and connecting with you, and, and really, camp has been kind of building up to this moment. It's been building up to tonight, and I want to be honest with you that at the end of tonight, I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond. I'm going to give you an opportunity to make a decision, to make a declaration of who Jesus is to you. So I want to start by just praying and asking the Holy Spirit to move in this place tonight. Would you join me as we pray? Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for every single student that you have brought here tonight. Thank you so much for Hume Lake and this camp. Thank you for this, our time in musical worship, for these videos, for our amazing counselors and leaders, and all that you have been doing to prepare our hearts for tonight. And Jesus, I pray that you would do what only you could do, that Jesus, you would save tonight, that you would move powerfully tonight, that, that, that the direction of our lives would be different because of tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. When, uh, when Sarah and I first got married, when Sarah and I first got married, um, pretty early on, she said, Eric, we got a problem. She said, the problem is this, you snore really bad, okay? Like really bad. And I kept telling her, I said, I don't snore bad. Everybody snores. Real men snore. Come on, Sarah. Like snoring is normal. And she said, no, Eric, you don't understand. There's like snoring. And then there's like what it would sound like if a bear was dying. And that's you, okay? Like that's what you sound like. And for years, for years, I kept telling her like, Sarah, like, it's I, I, I just, it's normal, like, you know, and she's like, I can't sleep, like, we got to figure this out. So finally, I went to one of these sleep study places, and it's the weirdest experience. I, I showed up to, like, a doctor's office at 8 o'clock at night, which is weird, right? Like, super sketch, showing up at 8 o'clock at night to the doctor's office, and, and there's, like, no one else there. They check me in. The lights are real dim. They walk me down this long hallway. There's a bunch of these doors leading into these rooms. And they put you inside of this room that's, that's kind of like a hospital room, hotel room kind of thing where basically they're going to hook me up to all this machinery and they're going to watch me sleep for a whole night, which that's creepy, right? Like, who gets that job? I don't know. I mean, it, it pays a lot to do it, but, but it's... It's just a weird thing. So I walk into this room. I walk into this room, and, and I sit down on the bed, and, and this technician guy comes in, and, and he's like, hey, he introduces himself. And, and I remember right as he was coming in, I was thinking, okay, I'm going to be going to sleep soon. All these people are going to be watching me. Like, I can get ready to go to sleep. And, and then I realized, man, I, I got to pee. Like, I really got to pee. And, and, and when am I going to do that? And, and there was this bathroom. There was a bathroom in the room. The door was wide open, but by the time a technician got in, like, I wasn't able to go to the bathroom. And so, so I thought, okay, I'll do it a little bit later and before I go to bed. And so I sit on the bed, and, and, and the guy, he just starts talking. And, and while he's talking and sharing with me uh, just about what they're going to do and stuff, he starts hooking me up. So he starts, like, literally connecting all of these kind of sensors and radars and things to my head, to my body and my arms and legs. And, and before I know it, like, I look like a half robot. Like, I've just got all these cords extending from me. And, and, and I quickly realize, like, I'm not going to the bathroom tonight. Like, I, I'm just, it's just not happening for me. 
And so I'm sitting there, and, and I remember the, the TV was on, and, and he turned off the TV, and, and it was like 9 o'clock at night, which I usually go to bed a little bit later, so it's 9 o'clock at night. And, and all of a sudden, he pauses, and he goes, hey, uh, you're a pastor, right? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm a pastor. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah I'm a Christian. I, I go to this church, and he starts telling me about his church, and we're having this great conversation. And then he's about to leave, and he looks at me, and he goes, I gotta ask you a question. Do you believe in ghosts? And you guys, I gotta tell you, I gotta tell you, the scariest thing we watch at my house is Coco Melon. That's it, okay? I'm I don't watch scary movies. I'm not into that. I get scared. My whole life I've gotten scared really easily by stupid things. And so, so, anyways, he he says, he says, Do you believe in ghosts? And I say, you know, honestly, I don't. I don't believe in ghosts. I actually think it's ghosts are one of those ways that, that Satan sort of tries to distract us spiritually, get us interested in this spiritual thing that, isn't, that ghosts aren't real so that we won't fix our eyes on Jesus. So no, I don't believe in ghosts. And he goes, yeah, yeah, me neither, me neither, me neither. And then he said this. But the last guy who was sleeping in this bed, he said he woke up in the middle of the night and somebody was tickling his feet. You guys, you guys, I started to freak out. I started to freak out because you know what I thought of? I thought of that bathroom with that door and I didn't go check it out and creepy tickly man is gonna be behind the bathroom and I really have to go pee and I don't know what I'm gonna do. And then he literally, right after he said that, he said, well, good night turned off the lights and closed the door and i'm stuck there and so needless to say i had a lot of time to think i texted my wife i was like i don't know if i'm gonna make it i love you tell the kids i love them too and i'm sitting there and i'm just thinking and thinking and thinking and i, I remember thinking you know that idea do you believe is a really interesting question and that question of what is truth is really one of those central questions that all of us are asking. It's why we began our time together this week talking about the truth of God's existence. Then we looked at God's word and, and we analyzed it from a historical standpoint. We, we asked the question, is this book reliable and trustworthy? And we discovered together that over and over and over again, this book true proves to be trustworthy so we can trust the scriptures then we talked about the truth of jesus we saw how he's all knowing all the time that he's all powerful that, that he's absolutely free and he chooses to freely love us and that only god can take the really hard parts of our life the painful things of our lives and do something really good with it and then last night, we, we had a really honest conversation together about the truth of our sin. That while God is holy and perfect and completely sinless, that we're broken. That sin has entered into our lives and into our world in a way that we can't fix on our own. And we actually talked about confessing our sins to God. And, and I reminded you that, that God... 
It, this doesn't make any sense to me, but, but when, when you and I, if you and I will give Jesus the worst of ourselves, our sins, if we will confess the worst of ourselves to Jesus, that according to the scriptures, and specifically 1 John 1, 9, Jesus will give the best of himself to us. That when you and I give Jesus the worst of ourselves, he gives us the best of himself. Last night we landed the plane talking about how things are not okay. That the problem of the world is sin, and that sin is any type of rebellion against God. It's any thought or action or word that's disobedient to God's word. Anytime we treat somebody not as an image bearer of God with value and worth, but as an object, as a tool that we could exploit. Anytime we slander or gossip or lust or lie. Anytime we deny God what's rightfully his, our lives. We're living in sin. And I said last night, sin will take you farther than you wanted to go. It will keep you longer than you wanted to stay. And it will cost you more than you're willing to pay. And the reality is, friends, because sin is the problem of the world and sin is the problem within us, it must be dealt with. Annalisa quoted that passage when she closed last night, for the wages of sin is death. That our sin separates us from God. But tonight I want to tell you an amazing story. Tonight I want to tell you the most incredible story. Tonight I want to tell you the greatest love story in the history of the world. Tonight I want to tell you the story of how God chose to respond to you and I living in sin. Tonight, I want to tell you the lengths that God went to win you and I back. And we'll start here and then we'll rewind. John chapter 18, verses 37 to 38. It says, you are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And then Pilate, we'll talk about him in a few minutes. Pilate famously responds, what is truth? Tonight, I want to share with you the truth of the gospel. The most true thing in the entire world. And I want to give you an opportunity to decide if you believe that it's true. Because if it's true, then it changes everything. C.S. Lewis, this really well-known, influential, prolific Christian writer, thinker, he said, Jesus is either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. Those are his words. Jesus is either liar, lunatic, or Lord. Essentially what he was saying is this. Jesus either knew that he wasn't God, but tried to convince everyone he was, making him a liar. Or Jesus was a lunatic. Jesus actually believed he was God. But it turns out he wasn't because he didn't rise from the dead like he said he would. Or Jesus is Lord. And friends, I propose to you that if Jesus truly is Lord, 
That does not mean that in some abstract way, Jesus is the Lord out there. It means that if he is Lord, he must be the Lord of your life as well. That he must call the shots in your life. That the only proper response to an understanding that Jesus is Lord is to recognize that he is the Lord of your life. We picked up, we left off last night in John chapter 8. In John chapter 10, Jesus introduces himself as the good shepherd. He talks about how his sheep know his voice. He says, I have come that they may have life, talking about us. In John chapter 11, we see that Jesus' best friend, Lazarus, dies. And everyone's mourning and crying, and, and, and Jesus does something almost unexpected. But because Jesus was 100% God and 100% human, the story in John chapter 11 says that Jesus actually wept. That Jesus started crying because his best friend died. Oh, he knew that he was going to bring him back to life. But the pain and the reality of death, it, it, was, it was overcoming for Jesus. A few chapters later in John chapter 13, Jesus is preparing his disciples for what's about to come. And he washes their feet. Something that was reserved for the lowest person in any household. And yet Jesus, being the creator of the world, as we talked about in John 1.1, chooses to take on the posture of a servant and washes his disciples' feet. And then in John 14, Jesus boldly says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now shortly before Jesus experienced his last few days here, he said some pretty profound words in Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 to 19. He said, now Je- it says, now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, and on the way he took the 12, his followers, he took them aside, and he said to them, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, talking about himself, will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, and they will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked flogged, crucified, and on the third day, he will be raised to life. In other words, Jesus is saying, guys, get ready. Because you think, as my disciples, you think that we're kind of just beginning this movement, that we're going to be together for many, many years, but I'm preparing you for what's about to come. And I want you to believe in the truth of my message and the truth of what I'm about to do. And so I'm letting you know what's going to happen. He says, I'll be mocked, I'll be flogged, I'll be crucified, and then I will be resurrected. In John chapter 19, verse 7, it says, the Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. In John 19, verse 12, just a few verses later, from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. What's revealed in these these verses is that Jesus had two very powerful enemies, two very powerful groups of people that were against him. He, He had the religious elite 
who were recognizing that Jesus was not just a nice teacher. He was claiming to be God. And that went against what they were teaching. And then on this side, the Roman officials quickly began to recognize Jesus was claiming to be the king of kings. And they believed only Caesar, only the Roman emperor could be king. And so on Thursday night, Jesus gathers with his disciples and they they share a meal together. And he breaks this bread and he says, guys, every time you break this bread, I want you to remember that my body's being broken for you. And then he passed a cup around. He said, every time you drink of this cup, I want you to remember that my blood is about to be poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And his disciples, they don't get it. They don't understand what's going on. It's not making any sense to them. After that dinner, he takes a few of his closest disciples into a garden. And he says, guys, I need you to pray with me. We need to go and pray. So they start praying, and Jesus moves a little bit farther into the garden, and then he says these really interesting words. He says, Father, take this cup from me, but not my will be done, your will be done. The Gospel of Luke, one of the historical accounts of the life of Jesus, was written by a doctor, a a medical researcher. And and Luke includes this detail that Jesus was literally sweating drops of blood. That as he's praying and crying out, Father, take this cup from me. He knows what's going to happen. He just told them. He knows he's going to be mocked and flogged and crucified. He's beginning to feel the weight of the sin of the world. Your sin, my sin, the weight of the sin of the world is beginning to to amount on his shoulders. And he literally cries out and says, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. And he's so overwhelmed. He's experiencing such anguish that he's dropping sweats of blood. Have you ever been so worried before? Have you ever been in such great anguish that you didn't know what you were going to be able to do next? That's what Jesus is feeling in this moment. But he boldly says, but not my will be done, your will be done. Shortly after that, shortly after that, Jesus is arrested. He's arrested and he's he's put on a mock trial. In fact, they blindfold Jesus. And they say, you're a prophet, right? And so they begin to slap him and spit on him and hit him. And they say, if you're a prophet, why don't you prophesy and tell us who's doing these things to you? Jesus has just experienced his mocking. At some point, he goes to bed that night. I imagine he doesn't sleep very much. He's woken up early the next morning, and he's brought before Pontius Pilate. And as he stands before Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of that day, with all the power to decide what to do, Pilate can't figure out what to do with Jesus, but but he can't ignore the crowd cheering behind him, crucify him, crucify him crucify him. And so Pilate says, fine, crucify him. But before you do that, flog him. In our Bibles written 2,000 years ago, it simply said that Jesus was flogged because everyone reading that word for the very first time 
would have known exactly what was going on. But for many of us, 2,000 years removed, we've lost the visual. Jesus, Jesus was stripped completely naked and his arms were tied around a pole, leaving his whole back exposed. And with the crowd surrounding him, cheering this on, two Roman guards were placed, each of them with whips in their hands, with glass and rock and nails at the end. And 39 times they whipped Jesus' back. You see, it took two Roman guards because this was such a tiresome task that it required two. In fact, many people historically died from this kind of torture. But Jesus didn't. But Jesus has just been flogged like he said he would. He's eventually untied and he collapses to the ground. And then he's forced to carry a giant, heavy wooden beam about a mile up to the top of a hill. One of the gospel writers says that, that Jesus was so tired towards the end of that, that that he collapsed and someone else had to pick up the wooden beam and carry it to the top. Once Jesus gets to the top, He's, he's forced to lay down with the giant wooden beam behind him and, and they feel for the depression in his wrist and they drive a giant nail through his wrist into the piece of wood. His other arm is stretched out and a nail is driven through it again and then one more nail driven through both feet into the piece of wood and Jesus is lifted up. And he's begun a torture death method that the Romans had perfected called crucifixion. Just like he said he would. The Gospel of Mark tells us that, that Jesus was up there for six hours. For, for, for six hours, he's just trying to catch his breath because you don't die from crucifixion because of blood loss. You die because you can't breathe anymore. And for six hours, he, he pushes against the nail in his feet to take a breath in, causing excruciating pain in his feet. He eventually exhales, causing excruciating pain in his wrist. And for six hours, he's in excruciating pain, just trying to catch his breath. And, and I use that word excruciating intentionally. Because we get our English word excruciating from the Latin word excruciare, which literally means out of crucifixion. In other words, the, the, the picture that comes to mind when you use the word excruciating is what happens to a person on a cross. And yet it's during these six hours that Jesus says things like, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. As people are mocking him, making fun of him, as he's making eye contact with those who have placed him on this cross, he says, Father, forgive them. He didn't just talk about compassion. He lived it out to the end. At one point, he notices his mom 
And he realizes that with him gone, who's going to look after her? And so as he's trying to catch his breath, he looks to one of his disciples, John, and says, John, take care of my mom. Mom, John will take care of you. This doesn't make any sense. Except Jesus was fully God, fully man, full of compassion and truth. And so for six hours, he's hanging on this cross until he finally breathes his last breath. And in John chapter 19, verse 30, it says that Jesus proclaimed, it is finished. And when Jesus said, it is finished, what he was saying is, it is finished that Satan will win the war in my people's lives. When he said, it is finished, what he was saying is sin will no longer have the last word. When he said, it is finished, he was saying, now my people's sins have been atoned for, have been dealt with. When he said, it is finished, he was saying, there no longer needs to be a separation between God and his created people. That sin, death, that sin, death, and Satan have been defeated. But maybe some of you are asking, why, why, I still don't get why all of this stuff that happened 2,000 years ago, like, why does that apply to my life? I don't get it. To help me with this, I need Gus in the back. Where's Gus? Gus, are you there? Gus, run up here real quick. You guys, can you welcome Gus up here? Welcome, Gus, to the stage. All right, Gus, run up here real quick. Run up here real quick. This is my buddy, Gus. Um, can everyone say hi, Gus? Okay, Gus. Here's what I'm going to ask you, Gus. Have you ever been handcuffed at church camp before? No. There's a first time for everything. There's a first time for everything. Okay, here's what I want to do, Gus. Give me your hand real quick. Let's take this one. You want to do that one? Yeah, let's go over here so everyone can see you. There you go. Stand right there. All right. Give me your wrist real quick. Okay, so to help us make sense of this idea of what Jesus did, I want to use this picture. I'm going to use this, this illustration. Sometimes we think of sin as that regrettable decision. We think about that thing maybe that we're so glad nobody else found out about. We're so glad nobody called our parents and told them. We're so glad that nobody posted about it but that it's something that happened in the past and, and, and it's behind us and we can move forward. But because God's word is true and because he loves you and I enough to tell us the truth, Satan would love for us to believe that we can deal with our sin on our own, that it's in our past, that we're fine moving forward. But the truth of God's word says this, that you and I are literally enslaved to our sin that we're handcuffed to our sin. I want you to think of this, this luggage, this baggage, as the baggage of our sin, as, as our sin that we are literally handcuffed to that we can't get out of on our own. And what both you and I oftentimes do is one of two strategies to deal with our sin. That maybe even last night you were like, man, I'm realizing the sin in my life, or maybe you've already tried this, but here's what you and I try to do. The first thing we try to do with our sin is we try to hide it from others. 
We try to curate an image, put on a front, make others believe that we don't have sin, even try to convince ourselves that we don't deal with sin. And so what we try to do is we try to hide our sin from others. Gus, right up here in this little space right here, I want you to try to hide, if this is your sin, I want you to try to hide your sin from everybody out there. Go ahead. <laughs> okay, now, this is awesome. This is awesome, right? Here's the thing. I know Gus. Gus and I actually go to the same church. I love Gus. He's amazing. He's an incredible kid. He's, like, so talented in every way. Raise your hand if you can still see Gus's sin. Raise your hand. Yeah, so, again, you're super talented, just not at hiding your sin. Okay, just not at hiding your sin, but you got other gifts. Here's the second thing we try to do, and you got to stay right here and be careful of all this equipment. Here's the other thing that we try to do. If we can't hide our sin from others or ourselves, we try to run from our sin. We create a new account. We go to a different youth group. We switch schools. We even sometimes run to doing good things, hoping that by us doing good things, we will outrun our sin. Here's what I want you to do, Gus. With this little air right here, be careful of this stuff. I want you to, I want you to run away from your sin. Ready, go. Yes, yes, Gus, come on back. It's so good. Now, here's the thing, here's the thing. Gus will probably be an Olympian at some point, okay? So just remember that you knew, we all knew Gus, but it seems to me, it seems to me that wherever Gus went, his sin went as well. And friends, apart from Jesus Christ, you and I are enslaved to our sin. And as much as we try to hide it, as much as we try to run from it, we're stuck with it. But what Jesus did 2,000 years ago on the cross is he took our sin for us. Let me see where they are. They're real. These are real. He took our sin for us. Now, hold on. This is why what Jesus did 2,000 years ago is so powerful. This is why what Jesus did 2,000 years ago is so personal. Because he didn't just die because a group of Jewish leaders and the Roman government hated him. He died because he wanted to be in a relationship with you. That, that, that just as we talked about last night, when you give the worst of yourself to Jesus, he gives you the best of himself. What he did is he gave you himself. He gave himself up for you. And so what happened on the cross 2,000 years ago is all of your sin. If you'll confess it to Jesus and believe in what he did, it all died with him. It all was dealt with by him. This is why what Jesus did 2,000 years ago matters. Can you guys thank Gus? Thank Gus. Good job, Gus. Thank you. In other words, friends, God, listen to this, God prioritized your life over his own. God held nothing back to win you back. But if you'll remember, as he said, recorded in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus said, I will be mocked, and it happened. He said, I will be flogged, and it happened. He said, I will be crucified, and it happened. 
But then he said, three days later, I will come back from the dead. I will be resurrected. And friends, I propose to you tonight that if Jesus did not rise from the dead, he did not die for your sins. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, you should not put your faith in him. Because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then he's a liar or he's a lunatic. But if Jesus rose from the dead, this game-changing truth changes the course of your life and my life. That if he truly rose from the dead, then everything he said, everything he promised, everything he proclaimed, everything he did was true and validated. And so you're smart students, which is why you're asking, why in the world would I believe that Jesus rose from the dead? I've never heard of that before. I've never seen anyone do that before. That doesn't make like scientific sense to me. Let me give you two reasons. Let me give you just two reasons. In fact, I want to encourage you on your own at some point to read 1 Corinthians 15. Paul gives four reasons why we can believe Jesus rose from the dead. Let me give you two of them. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, the Apostle Paul, who's got a really cool story. I mean, he literally hated Christians. His his life's mission was to hunt down every Christian and persecute them and kill them and destroy the church. And then he met Jesus. And he went from trying to to break the church to giving his life to build the church. And Paul says this. He says, when Jesus rose from the dead, reason number one, you can believe that he rose from the dead, Jesus appeared to his disciples. Why is this significant? Here's why. On Friday, when Jesus was crucified, how many of his disciples were willing to die with him? Zero. Zero. In other words, they loved Jesus. They appreciated his teaching. They liked him. He had made a significant impact in their lives. But when they saw him going to the cross, they did not follow. They were not willing to die for him at that point. But here's what's crazy. Each one of those disciples, they saw Jesus come back from the dead. Like they saw him with their own eyes. And what history tells us is that every single one of those disciples started telling everyone they knew, Jesus is back. Jesus is back. He's alive. He's alive. He rose from the dead. He died on the cross, and then he came back. This is amazing. But not everybody responded with the same amazement. In fact, every one of those disciples was persecuted. They were tortured. They were abused. They were mocked. They were outcasts from their society. They were ostracized. 11 of them were murdered. One of them crucified upside down. I mean, they experienced such horrific, painful torture because they proclaimed that Jesus rose from the dead. I just ask you this question. How do you logically explain that on Friday, before Jesus rose from the dead, they weren't willing to die with him? But come Sunday, they were willing to give up their lives, and they did. The only logical explanation is they saw it. They saw him back, and they realized Jesus is 
Lord. And if he's the Lord of my life, I can't try to preserve my life. I've got to tell the whole world about him. Let me give you a second reason. And this one might even be more compelling. Paul says that Jesus also appeared to his brother, James. Now, in the Gospels, the historical accounts of Jesus, we learn in John chapter 7 and in Mark chapter 3 that that Jesus' family really doubted him. That, in fact, they thought that he was crazy. They thought he was out of his mind. And then in Acts chapter 1, we see that James, the brother of Jesus, is praying with the disciples. In other words, before Jesus' resurrection, his brother James thought he was crazy. But then after the resurrection, he's now praying with his disciples. And then James ends up becoming a significant leader in the, the Jerusalem church. He writes one of the letters recorded in the New Testament. And he begins that letter this way. He says, I, James, a servant of the Lord Jesus. I mean, he literally went from thinking his brother was crazy to saying, my brother is my Lord. How many of you have siblings? Raise your hand if you have a sibling. Raise your hand. How would you convince them that you were God? Like, how would you do that? They know too much dirt about you. It couldn't happen. But think about this. Think about this. Think about this. Jesus' own brother. He's leading the church, telling the world that my brother is my Lord. And he's eventually thrown off a ledge. He falls to the ground and a group of people surround him and they beat him until he died because he was telling the whole world, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Jesus rose from the dead. They did not murder James because he was the brother of Jesus. They murdered James because his testimony about his brother being resurrected from the dead was so powerful that they had to squash it. There's countless other reasons to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. The question is, do you believe that? In John 3, 16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 4 and 5 says, But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And then Paul in Romans 10 9 says, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I want to close with this story. I want to close with this story, and then I want to give you an opportunity to respond. There's a guy at our church named Tim, and Tim had a crazy background, crazy past. Just a, just a, a wild life, and then lost it all. In fact, he he had all that the world 
He had all that the world had to offer. But it left him empty. And when he lost it all, he, he said, Jesus, I've got nothing left. Nothing is satisfied. And he surrendered his life to Christ. So he shared his story in our youth group one night. And, and he asked me, he said, hey, can my friend Ryan come and hear, hear me share my testimony? I said, yeah, sure. So as Tim's about to share his story, I look out at the back of our youth room and, and there's this like 350 pound guy, like, like, like whoever trains like, like the rock Dwayne Johnson, like that's this guy, right? Like he's big. And he's just kind of sitting there listening to his friend, Tim, share his story. After Tim shares his story, we get up and invite, student, or invite the students to respond, to surrender their lives to Jesus. And we were talking to the students, but Ryan in the back with tears in his eyes raises his hand and begins to walk forward. And he's got a lot of momentum. And I'm like, he's 350 pounds. He doesn't slow down quick. This is going to be bad, right? Like he's going to come, he's going to you know, rush me on the stage. I don't know what's going to happen. And he gets up to the very front and he says, I want what Tim was talking about. A few weeks after that, we, my friend Tim and I went to Ryan's house. And we sat down with him. And we shared with him more about the, the Jesus that's revealed in Scripture. The truth of the gospel like we've talked about tonight. That Jesus Christ has died for all of our sins. That he rose from the dead. That he is the Lord and he wants to be the Lord of our lives. And Ryan, he started crying again and he said, I want that. I want to surrender my life to Jesus. And we prayed with him and it was amazing. And then we said, you got to start reading the Bible now to get to know God. And he said, okay, I have a Bible. He, he said, some Jehovah's Witness came and they gave me a Bible. And I said, I'm going to confiscate that. And so I took that and I grabbed my Bible and I said, I want you to take this. And I want you to read this. And for two weeks, Ryan couldn't stop telling people about Jesus. He was inviting his friends and his neighbors over to their house and they were watching church online. It was during the pandemic and, and he was talking about God and God was doing some really cool things. And then one Friday morning, I got a phone call from his wife. and She said, Ryan's dead. She said, Ryan passed away. And I thought to myself, man, life is so fragile. Life is so short. We have no idea what tomorrow holds. But tonight, the truth of the gospel is an invitation to you and I to trust that Jesus is not a liar. He's not a lunatic. He is Lord. And to make him the Lord of our lives and to receive his forgiveness because you and I can't uncuff ourselves. We can't deal with our sin on our own. But when we trust our lives to Jesus, he forgives us. He purifies us. He walks with us. And he changes us from the inside out. Now I want each one of you to close your eyes right now. And I want you to think about where are you in terms of your relationship with Jesus? Some of you might have been invited up to camp this week and, and you've, you've never known about what Jesus has done for you. 
Maybe you've heard his name, but you've never followed him. You've never said yes to him. You've never received his forgiveness before. And this whole week of camp, God has just been making himself clear to you. And you're recognizing that you didn't come up to camp just to have a good time, just to hang out with some friends, just to enjoy some food and activities. No, God brought you to camp to reveal himself to you, to save you, to forgive you, and to begin a relationship with you. It's clear in Genesis to Revelation, the whole Bible, that God loves you. The question of Scripture is, do you love God? It's clear in Scripture that God has chosen you. The question tonight is, do you want to choose God? And so with every eye closed tonight, if you're in this room and you've never begun a relationship with Jesus before, you've never received his forgiveness, and tonight you want to begin a relationship with Jesus, you want to receive his forgiveness and love, and you want to make him the Lord of your life, not just tonight, but the Lord of your life forever, that you want to spend all of eternity with him in heaven, and you want to begin that relationship with him now, I want you to raise your hand right now. I want you to raise your hand right now as a way of saying, Jesus, I want you to be the Lord of my life. And with your hand held high, I want to just pray for you. God, I thank you for these students. I thank you for the decisions that are being made. I thank you for these students who came up to camp, maybe not even knowing anything about you, who came up to camp and you are not the Lord of their life, but tonight they are making a decision that they believe the truth of your gospel your good news, that you died and rose for our sins, for us, to save us. God, I pray that these students would follow you the rest of their days because of the decision they're making tonight. With every eye closed, I want to talk to another group of people. If you guys can lower your hands. There's, there's some of you here tonight who, who at one point you were following Jesus, but lately, recently... He has not been the Lord of your life. That other things have been the Lord of your life. And you've recognized this week that, that Jesus wants to be the king of your heart, the king of your life. And that it's time to repent. It's time to come home. It's time to, to recommit to that. If tonight you want to you wanna repent and, and decide again, to make Jesus the Lord of your life like he was before, but you want a renewed commitment that Jesus is your Lord and Savior. I want you to raise your hand right now so that I could pray for you. God, I thank you for these students who at one time were walking closely with you and it just seems like recently they haven't. I thank you that you are not the God who holds grudges. You are the God who hands out grace. And Lord, I pray that these students would know they're forgiven, they're loved, and that you have a good purpose and plan for their lives. I want to invite all of you to open your eyes for a quick second. Students, something really powerful, miraculous happened in this place. In fact, the greatest miracle in the history of the world is when spiritually dead people become alive. When lost people become found, that's what the gospel does.
And tonight, many of you decided to raise your hand to trust Jesus with your life for the first time. Or maybe you're returning and coming home and saying, Jesus, I want you to be the Lord of my life again. Here's what I want you to do on the count of three. If you raised your hand for either of those groups, I want you to stand up. And here's why. Because scripture says that all of heaven is celebrating over the life change and the decisions that happened in this place. And Jesus gave us each other. It's called the church, the body of Christ. And we get to encourage each other and help each other. You're not supposed to follow Jesus alone. You're supposed to follow Jesus with a tribe, a community, a family. And so we want to celebrate what God did in this place. And we want to encourage you in the decision you've made. And so on the count of three, if you raised your hand, I want you to stand up. And I want the rest of us to cheer and celebrate and thank God for doing what only God could do. If you raised your hand, stand up on three. One, two, three. Now, while you're standing, while you're standing, while you're standing, I've got two questions for you. The first question is this, and I want all of you to answer out loud if you're standing. First question is this, is Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior? Dang, that was good, y'all. That was good. Question number two is this, are you committed to following Jesus when you get back down the mountain for the rest of your life, with your whole life, obeying him in everything that he calls you to do. Then welcome to the family of God or welcome back to the family of God. Now I want to invite all of you to stand up, all of you to stand up. And we're going to sing together. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that your gospel still does what only your gospel can do. That you've radically changed hearts and lives tonight. And I pray, Jesus, that we would live lives in response. That we would sing in response. That we would trust you with every part of us. Because you and you alone are Lord. And that's the truth of the gospel. Two glasses.